Hey everyone, and welcome back to Real Perspective, the podcast based on a YouTube show based on a podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, MJ Smith. I'm Michael Moray. And Missy is in rehearsals for It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, so we are holding down the fort this week with a much shorter winded review than the film of <laughs> The Irishman, which is the latest film from Martin Scorsese, starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino. And uh, kind of a host of other Italian actors. Yeah. Uh, Harvey Keitel shows up. Bobby Cannavale is there. Ray Romano's there. Um, mm. Which, uh, for me, I hope means we get Mike's Ray Romano impression. Raymond. <laughs> it's not, it's not, not my Ray Romano. It's my Robert Barone. Oh, okay. Ro- what's, what's his yeah, name? Yeah, Barone. Barone. Robert Barone. Yeah. Brad Garrett. Brad Garrett impression. I thought you did a uh, Deborah. Oh, yeah. Later. <laughs> okay. I'll save it for later. Okay. That's your reward for sticking through the next three and a half hours of this podcast. <laughs> we're doing a minute by minute commentary. And so we're going to pause it after every minute and talk about the previous minute of the movie. Mm-hmm. So it'll be like a seven hour podcast. Right. No, it's, it's, uh, so it's based off a novel, not a novel, a, but um, it's based a man on, who is Irish. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, the latest MCU film, Irishman. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> It's uh, it's based off of a book that's sort of a memoir of this uh, mafia guy named Frank Sheeran. Um, he was a real guy. He was involved in the the <clears throat> North Philadelphia crime family with um, Russell Buffalino, who Joe Pesci plays Russell Buffalino. They had a big hand in um, Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters stuff. Um, so Hoffa plays a major part in the movie played by Al Pacino and, uh, it's just kind of the story of an old Frank Sheeran looking back at his life in this Philadelphia crime family, his relationship with Jimmy Hoffa and kind of wondering what the point was, uh, that's it. That's like the plot of the movie. It is three and a half hours long of just that. And so over the course of the film, you get to see him kind of uh, get in, work his way into the good graces of the Buffalino crime family um, and then work his way up as the, the ranks until he becomes like a trusted confidant, confidant of the, 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 the heads of the family. And they entrust him to go and protect Hoffa because he's kind of in their pocket and it's kind of a uh, you scratch your back, you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours type of situation with Hoffa until it's not and so frank ends up caught in the middle between hoffa and the buffalinos and hoffa kind of starts getting a little more paranoid a little more off the rails a little more i don't know just unhinged after he does some time in prison and eventually what happens is frank sheeran kills hoffa and they burn his body and that's sort of what happened to jimmy hoffa according to frank sheeran um there's also some crazy stuff the, uh, surrounding certain historical events of the 1960s that Frank claims to have been involved in, like him dropping off the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion weapons, mm-hmm. uh, him implying that the mafia and the Teamsters did a hit on JFK. Mm-hmm. So it plays fast and loose with the historical accuracy but so does Frank Sheeran's telling of these events. So all of that stuff is actually in the book. Um, so Frank told the author of the book that. And uh, yeah, it's just three and a half hours of old white dudes talking in various 
like furnished rooms. Mm. Yeah. There's like a lot of wood furniture. Yeah. And carpeting. Mm-hmm. And uh, old white guys. Yeah. And that's the movie. Pretty much. It's the whole movie. Yeah. Mike, what did you think of The Irishman? Um, I didn't like it as much as you did. Sure. Um, I came out on the side of uh, liking it mildly by the end of it. <laughs> After a glowing review from Mike Moore. <laughs> um, after mildly disliking it for the first two and a half fucking hours of it. Um, but then the last hour of it, I don't want to say justified it, but I, 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 underst- I understood that like, okay, it was kind of leading up to this and mm-hmm. it was like a masterclass in tension and um, consequences and exploring like the repercussions of actions and when you take it as a meta movie kind of where scorsese is dealing with his previous uh films and the gangster genre it i think it's enhanced a lot uh i think it's a standalone movie there's a part of me that kind of felt like what was the point of this movie (laughs) uh and i'm not sure i ever quite overcame that um but by the end of it i did feel like i enjoyed it and i i would recommend it mildly (laughs) um it is a movie that's in the running for my favorite of the year uh i need to see it again just because it's a lot it's a lot Uh, as a matter of fact i was watching the first like i got through the first maybe 40 ish minutes of it before you came over um to record just to kind of serve as a little you know, memory refresher. I saw it in a theater actually, which was cool. I said, I didn't take a bathroom break. No. Uh, man, did I want to, <laughs> but no one else in my theater was getting up. So I was like, all right, I guess we're in this for the long haul. Everyone, huh? Like yeah. I didn't want to be that guy, Yeah. but I'm also wondering if it was a room full of people desperate for someone to start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I did really enjoy it. That being said, it is a movie full of mundanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a lot of criticisms I've seen of it that I would argue are features, not bugs, but I can kind of see how you would get there. Uh, there's also a lot of criticism that is actually bonkers to me. You know, I don't get cynical about much, uh, particularly when we're talking about criticism. And I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the sort of meta narrative that surrounded this movie with Scorsese and the MCU, because that's incredibly uninteresting to me yeah (laughs) um but some of the criticism i have seen of the movie um is real weird like it's it's coming from a place of people hated his comments about mcu and so therefore they are super defensive well and i think that the thing is like even for as much as i love the movie right i don't know how you could walk away from it saying like it's an outright terrible movie I know people who have said that. Like, it's ridiculously well made. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, it, and I saw there was there was an article that said, it's okay, you can admit it, the Irishman was terrible. And I was like, I don't know if it was terrible. Like, no, no, no. Yeah, and I should qualify my statements by saying it's a technically well-made movie. I just realize it's not, like, my taste. But, like, I, I think it's fantastically made and produced and directed and acted and shot and you know all these other things yeah like the person who wrote this said that uh they think the movie 
uh, weighing in at an obscene 209 minutes, every one of them boring, ill-acted, poorly written, and amateurishly directed, with CGI effects so demented Big Mouth De Niro, who is 76, looks 90 rather than the intended blue-eyed 35, is a turkey. And, like, I can get behind (laughs) maybe... Two of those statements. (laughs) I can get behind maybe not liking the CG. We'll talk about that in a second. I thought it was fine for the most part. Uh, And I can get behind maybe thinking it's boring. I would argue that's a feature, not a bug. Because, and the reason I would say that is because the CGI I I have an argument for too. But it could be a rose-colored glasses thing and I'm willing to admit that. But for me, the mundanity is because you kind of see this friendship between... um, frank and hoffa develop and i think so what happens is frank ends up having to kill hoffa right and i think without the sort of just like day-to-day lives of these guys Mm -hmm. if you just showed the you know the big like cinematic for lack of a better word moments of this i don't know that the weight of the last 45 minutes would work as well yeah i think that's a strong point i also think that the mundane aspect of the movie is clearly intentional yes. from the standpoint that it's uh, trying to demonstrate that the like life of a gangster or a hitman or an enforcer isn't that glamorous. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it's not, oh yeah, I just made this cool murder of this person. Like the way, you know, maybe like Godfather shows like the scene and uh, the baptism scene, you know, mm. oh, people are getting like their whacked. whacked, you know, it's really mundane. You like, you trick a guy or something like that, or you walk into a room and you shoot a guy in the face and you run away as fast as possible or, you know, whatever. It's not glorious. It's a decidedly unsexy movie. Yes. To the point where actually when I, I didn't love it when I had finished it. Like yeah. when I got done with it, I was like, I really liked the last hour of that. Wow. That was a lot. I'm mm. not sure how I felt about it overall. And yeah. it grew on me the more I read conversations about it, the more I kind of thought about it on my own of what Scorsese was trying to do. It is you, because he's he's he made, you know, Goodfellas and Casino and arguably Wolf of Wall Street falls into the same category. Mm. Um, but those all have like an energy about them. And this movie is lethargic to a point yeah but i think that's the point of the movie is that like that's kind of stupid like this kind of sucks yeah and i think that's the point of those other movies too but it's like these men are so blinded by their mm-hmm. by the glitz and glamour of the like and they're all of, in their prime yeah they're all in their prime and they're also like so blinded by the fact that so many people look up to them because they're known gangsters right mm-hmm. And so many people like want to be them and so many women want to be with them that uh, they get caught up in that and get blinded mm-hmm. by that and eventually recognize their downfall and either get punished as a result. Like if you watch these Scorsese gangster movies, none of these guys get away with any right. of it. Yeah. And so like not, he's never made a movie that endorses this lifestyle at all. Mm. This one, however, is told from the perspective of a very old man who's made it to the other side of this lifestyle mm-hmm. and is looking back on it, wondering if it's a life well lived. And it very obviously is not. And so he's full of regret and sorrow. Mm-hmm. It's a very somber movie. Oh, it's totally. a very somber movie. Right. And there's actually... Scorsese is a very, very Catholic man. 
And that faith works its way into every single one of his movies, uh, except maybe Wolf of Wall Street, now that I think about it. Um, he uses a lot of Christ imagery. He uses a lot of people in churches. A lot of the themes he explores are people reconciling with, like, living a life bigger than themselves, but also kind of trying to atone for certain sins or whatever. And there's there's a big theological word that I think not that many people know uh, that is really kind of the key to unlocking this movie thematically. And I think it worked for me because I did, I don't want to say a deep dive. I read one book about the subject. There's a word in theology called eschatology. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the yeah. word? Eschatology is like the, the the theological or spiritual study of things at the end mm. of either death, of the apocalypse, of, of just things ending. Like um, end times. Yeah, yeah, end times, but also of like a life ending. Yes. And I think this movie is an eschatology of both the gangster movie mm-hmm. and Scorsese's entire career. Like it's very intentional that he's working with these longtime collaborators and basically wouldn't do the movie unless he could pull Joe Pesci out of retirement. Mm. Um, also, you see this thing that happens during the movie where characters get introduced and it freeze frames on them and it shows how they died. Yeah. And I saw a lot of people who were really confused by that and it's all in service of the eschatology of this movie of like the eventual ending of their mafia lifestyle is like, Oh, they were shot in the head in 1980 while they were sitting outside a baseball game or whatever, like, you know? And, uh, so I think an understanding at least of the definition of that word goes a long way with, uh, understanding certain elements of the movie. Sure. There's this, uh, uh, There's an album, and I never in a million years would have thought I would have connected it back to this album, but here we are. David Crowder Band, who's a Christian artist, has this album called A Collision, or 3 plus 4 equals 7. And he ends the the album with... It's 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 this, like, sprawl... It's like an hour and 15-minute album. And it's this kind of sprawling look at what it means to live the Christian life beginning to end from, like, acceptance of Christ as a savior to your death. And he ends it with uh, a a kind of combined track called an interview slash the Lark Ascending. The Lark Ascending is a piece written for violin or for a string quartet or something. Anyway, so it's it's set up as David Crowder's doing an interview to promote the album that you're listening to. And he keeps talking about the artists who have influenced this album, but he keeps mentioning their death date and how they died. And the interviewer eventually is like, why do you keep bringing this up? Mm-hmm. And he just doesn't address it ever in the interview. He never responds to the guy like being like, hey, this is really weird. And eventually the interview goes to static and the the piece, the Lark Ascending finishes just by itself. Mm. And he wrote the album as kind of a meditation on death. Eerily, it came out a month before the, the he was, he was a worship pastor at a church in Waco, Texas. A month after the, the album came out, the pastor, the head pastor of the church was electrocuted in front of the entire church doing a baptism. The microphone fell into the water and electrocuted him. Oh, yeah. And so Crowder wrote a book about eschatology following that guy's death but he had gotten into the subject because he had gotten into bluegrass music there's a lot of bluegrass songs about death and dying and what's on the other side i'll fly away great speckled bird etc etc and so that thought was already on his mind and then this happens right and so he felt like prepared to deal with it Mm -hmm. and so 
I think that actually has a lot of similarities with the Irishman, which is very strange to me because there couldn't be more wildly different um, pieces of media or genres. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that a lack of understanding of that goes a long way to some people's confusion about the movie. Um, But I don't think that means the movie has to change. No. You know? Um, What else? There's... I think people are also look. It's not an entertaining movie. No, no, it, <laughs> it's not. It isn't. <laughs> now it, but my argument is like, is Schindler's List entertaining? No, it isn't either. It, it isn't. No. But it's it's a great movie, you know. Correct. And, and I think you could make an argument that that depends on what your definition of entertainment is, because mm. I think Schindler's List does captivate your attention much more for its runtime which is of similar length to this than this does like your mind kind of starts to wander totally during this (laughs) yeah but it feels so intentional that i can't i don't know like you texted me after and you were like i don't know what i would cut but it does seem like a ridiculously long movie because it is yeah yeah i mean like all of it was in service of the points that he was trying to make right so as an editor i wouldn't know what to change about it it seems like he thought this through a lot in mm-hmm. his writer, the screenwriter, you know, but it's frustrating because it's also like, did the movie need to be that long to get to that point? Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I mean, like, I get it because once again, I can't think of much that I would cu- like directly cut. Right. But then it, it, it all just, blurs like, together it, so much. It all blurs together and it's all in service of a very simple point, mm-hmm. which is basically that like, hey, this life isn't so glamorous, huh? You know, yeah. and, and like it'll destroy your life and your family's life, and they will resent you, and you're going to be lonely. Yeah, it, uh, it, I don't know if I need like three and a half hours to like get to that conclusion. Yeah, in because a way. it's a dis- not only is it decidedly unsexy, it's decidedly unepic, right? right? Like people are using this like it's his final magnum opus mob yeah, epic. Yeah, yeah. It's is not. It no. is. It is so not sweeping yeah. at all it's like the anti-epic you yeah. know i mean like everything about the movie is an anti-climax yeah and i totally understand and respect the fact that that's intentional there's also another part of me that's like well then like why do you make a movie that's like deliberately yeah anticlimactic yeah and i get like it can i think that things can be valid um without appealing to my taste mm-hmm. or they, they all have to be some historical epic or something like that it's just not for me always. Right, right. And I, I've, I've even seen people who are saying like, oh, the fish scene didn't need to be in there. And I was like, that it, what? No. Yeah. That fish scene is one of the, not only one of the best scenes in the movie in terms of tension and escalation, mm-hmm. but like that scene is so important to the story that Frank is telling. Mm-hmm. Like it's so important. If you think that scene is just about meth Damon having a fish in his car, like you, that's a strong indicator that you did not pay enough attention to the movie leading up to that point. Totally. Because that scene happens right before they go and kill Hoffa. And it like, them just going on and on and on about this stupid fish is so obnoxious, but that's the point because you're supposed to feel Frank's like frustration and confusion with what the hell is going on Mm -hmm. because he's not told much about anything that's going on. So them going on and on about it, you're supposed to be like, okay guys, like what's happening? Right. Yeah. It's unsettling the audience for that period of time. Yes. And that's a hundred percent intentional. Oh yeah. And it's so effective in getting that point across. So, yeah, I've, I've seen like two or three 
tweets and comments about how that scene needs to go. And I was like, what no. the hell? Like, no way, man. No, I was like very frustrated during those like 30 minutes in that movie. Yes. Because I was like, wait, like, am I missing something? Like, I don't feel like I understand like what's going on. Yeah. Then I understood like, oh yeah, we're not supposed to understand. Like, I gotten so used to this being like force fed plot points and this character feels this way because he delivered a monologue saying this or whatever that, no, it's like deliberately confusing and irritating because like you're meant to also feel that frustration that like maybe frank is feeling inside yep or maybe he's not i don't know like <laughs> yeah i mean like which is also unsettling you know yeah which maybe he isn't feeling that but you're supposed to be disoriented it, yeah but it works well i think in the context of the movie yeah i think so too um so let's talk about the performances there are obviously three huge name actors at the center of this story you have joe pesci it's kind of the return for him, he, he, you know, was retired and Scorsese got him out. Robert De Niro, who was a longtime collaborator of Scorsese's and hadn't collaborated with him since Casino, I think. Uh, which was Casino or Goodfellas was the last one they did together. Casino came out. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it was Casino. And uh, then Pacino, who this is, as far as I know, a first-time collaboration with Scorsese. I think so. Um, Pacino's given the showiest role, mm -hmm. uh, which I think worked really well. Like, Hoffa's kind of like a bloviating dude, <laughs> and I don't think there's anyone better at that than Pacino when he's at his best. Um, and I think Scorsese weaponizes that really well. Yeah. Um, but Pesci is also known for being kind of the loudmouth live wire of these Scorsese gangster movies. And he's like the total opposite in this. It's yeah. very quiet performance from Joe Pesci in it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the, the weight of the movie rests on De Niro's shoulders. So what did you think of the three main performances? Uh, I, you know, De Niro, it's weird because he, he's so effortless in it. I almost kind of discount his acting in mm -hmm. the movie, mm -hmm. but I, I recognize that what he did is actually probably the hardest task of any of them. Yeah. Um, I think he does a good job, especially in the end yeah. of conveying like the weight of his actions and, and I think his dawning realization that he's lonely, but it's still kind of without him really ever truly apologizing to mm -hmm. So he doesn't like, he's not ever, I think, uh, truly remorseful for what he did or not repenting of what he did. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, I think he also realizes he's lost something. I think he shows that mixture of those two very well. Um, and I, I think throughout the movie, you also see his kind of growing admiration of Hoffa um, mm. and, in very subtle ways. Um, and so I appreciated his performance by the end, even though in the beginning I was like not as impressed with it. Pacino, he's kind of more dialed into the Pacino-iness of, yeah. of it all, but it's restrained in a way that it wasn't for the last <laughs> 20 years right, or so. Right, right. Uh, it's well suited. I agree with you. It's weaponized correctly. It's aimed at the right targets. And it, it made me appreciate that he has an acting quality that has been sort of forgotten or dismissed or dormant. And I think that this goes and shows that he still has it. And he always had it. Yeah. He just kind of wasn't directed in the right way or given the right roles. And then, um, you know, it, uh, Pesci. Pesci is... I think maybe the most surprising because yeah, he's not playing kind of the, the t dialed up like uh, hothead, hothead uh, motor mouth. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think he kind of puts in the best performance in a way, especially yeah. his last scene. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. He, he goes and portrays an older version of himself. And, uh, that is, I think pretty, uh, not moving per se, but it's very effective yes. in, in showing how he's declined. Um, and I think that he puts in the best performance in the film. I think so too. I think that there's, a. I don't know. There's something about his performance that's so unlike the Joe Pesci we're used to, mm-hmm. but also uses his strengths as an actor in such a, in like a way that has never happened before. But it's so obvious that he's been able to do this the entire time he's been acting. Mm-hmm. Just no one ever did it. Like it just shows like how typecasted he was off of a really good performances in My Cousin Vinny and Casino and Goodfellas. And Lethal Weapon. <laughs> yeah, and Lethal Weapon. Uh, um, and he, Pesci has this quality about him. I think Lethal Weapon's probably the best of it. Uh, the Goodfellas, too, where, like, he's the worst type of person, right? Yeah. Like, he's awful. But, like, when stuff happens to him, you're still rooting for him. Like, he's he's got this, like, hey, that guy's an asshole, but he's our asshole right. kind of quality yeah. about him. And uh, you still kind of get that in this. Like, like you said, by the end of the movie... I think the the closest thing to to being an epic that this movie has is showing them kind of through the decades. Yes. And you see them, you know, they make it out alive, essentially, from like the glory days, whatever that means in the context of this movie, Mm -hmm. of like the Hoffa conflict and the really big, like grandiose, roaring days of them being involved with this crime family mm-hmm. and they all end up in prison together right <laughs> and and that's sort of the 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 denouement of the of the 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 anti-climax of that's actually the climax of the movie which is like they did all this stuff and they went to prison yeah <laughs> and got really old and really sick the way old people get right really old and really sick and his character has a stroke and his stroke acting is so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's some of the best I've ever seen. Um, even to the point, like my dad had a stroke and it wasn't as severe as the one that Pesci is portraying, but I was like, whoa, he did his research. Mm-hmm. Like just the way he carries himself. And then his final line in the movie where he says like, you'll see uh, to the, to De Niro when he's getting wheeled into the church right before he dies, mm-hmm. where it's like, you're, you're going to like, you're going to understand what this means soon um it's really effective yes pacino like i said he's got the showy part Mm -hmm. right it's definitely the showpiece of the of the movie and it's great and he's great in it and he's always been great and it's just been like you said probably he hasn't been directed well i think de niro is the same way yes um de niro is so like you said effortless i think is a really good word to put it way to put it it, it's just so it comes out of this guy so naturally whereas he just gets that like every man working class gangster thing so perfectly Mm -hmm. and even even in like casino where he is the big he's the showpiece of that movie right he's the head of this vegas casino mafia family and uh kind of in goodfellas too you see him as not that in this and he's so good at just slipping into that like blue collar gangster essentially um and and just like what that mentality is like like the idea of 
working to feed your family, the idea, like you understand where Frank is coming from in every single scene of this movie and you totally get it. And then by the end, you know, it's, there's not even, there's not a remorse to it, but there's, there's like a sorrow in it, but it's Mm -hmm. like a, there's an emptiness, there's an emptiness to it. And it's sort of like this guy who he's never like guys like that don't feel things. Right. Like they're told not to. And so he has these feelings, but he doesn't know how to properly process them or express them or express them. Mm -hmm. And conveying that is so good. Like Mm -hmm. the way he is able to convey that he there's definitely something inside of him that understands that there's something he's sad about. Right. But he doesn't know what it is, Mm -hmm. but it can't be this thing that he looks back on fondly with. Right. Like there's no way it's that thing when it's definitely Definitely that that thing. thing. Yeah. Uh, which leads me into this conversation. The CGI. Yeah. Uh, so they digitally de-age the three main people in the movie. And then they use practical effects for everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some some stuff about how the CGI is kind of bad. I thought it was good. I thought, I thought it, was, it good. was actually really good. Yeah. Some of the best we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certain scenes that are a little iffier than others but on the whole for like a three and a half hour movie given how much freaking cg there is in this movie yeah. it's better than it isn't like it's it's more good than it's not oh yeah i agree it didn't really bother me at all i mean yeah. you know, maybe the worst de-aging in it is the world war ii scene which literally lasts what 30 seconds a if minute that, yeah. you know like not even that long yeah uh it, the fact that that became like a big discussion the pre-release yeah and it just turned out to be you know maybe like 0.5% of the movie's runtime. <laughs> yeah. I mean, granted, the movie's a long movie. <laughs> yeah. No, but um, it, it's just not that big of a it's deal. It's so inconsequential. Yeah. And I know you talked about the movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- that that being said, I think if you like just took the stills of the stuff or when they were sitting down, it didn't bother me. Mm-hmm. When they moved around a little bit more, that's when you kind of saw they were like 70-year-old men bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, I, people, people who are 30 years old move differently than people who are 70 years <laughs> right, old right. i mean it's just a fact of life right um the way you distribute your weight the the kind of late not laziness uh, the oldness the creakiness of your body it's just different and so when somebody had to like take like a little bit of a jog after shooting somebody in the face <laughs> um it, it kind of was like stood out a little bit more right. um when when like or then they would just stand up after sitting down <laughs> and where it wasn't noticeable right and you got these kind of creaky old man getting up uh motions that's where it kind of stands out some more that's mm. not something that you can just use a computer to get rid of and right. unless we like take a young actor's body and slap the old actor's face on it or something like that you know right. so that that's means where we've got most noticeable, but otherwise, I mean, it is like such a non-noteworthy aspect of this movie. It's it's kind of crazy to me. It's become my focal point of it. Yeah, I thought so too. But I've seen people who are like, "It looks like cats," and I was like, "There's no Whoa, way. No, there's no way. No." Um, but I have seen an argument that I don't know about. Like, I'm I'm still on the fence of whether or not I agree. But I think it's an interesting point of discussion which is that all of that is on purpose Mm. because everything else in this movie is super intentional. We have to understand that we're being told this story from Frank's perspective. He's already got a crazy spin on some certain historical events as it is. And also when you remember yourself younger, like you're, it's going to be imperfect. You know, like it's like a look into this guy's memory of how he remembers. Gauzy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I really kind of like that because, and this is the thing that really kind of buttoned the argument for me. Like 
Bobby Cannavale and Ray Romano and the other supporting cast get practical makeup effects for their aging. Mm. Um, like Scorsese's not an idiot. He's done this a time or two. Like mm. he knows what he's calling attention to when he's calling attention to it. Mm -hmm. I think, um, now he's also not known for editing for continuity. So <laughs> yeah, I'm less convinced about that. I just sure. think it's like, eventually you have to draw a line when you're making a $200 million movie right. and we're going to de-age three people and we'll call it quits. You <laughs> sure, know, like, sure. like the, the top build actors will de-age and then these other ones, we can maybe get away with the, the prosthetics or whatever. But, yeah. but I, I can see that. I think it was well considered probably, you yeah. know, it, it, but I wouldn't go so far. I think that it's like, him retroactively looking back on the past with rose tinted glasses. Right. Either. Right. Um, so all that, speaking of the supporting cast, what yeah. did you think of them? There are kind of three main supporting actors yeah. that are, so there's Bobby Cannavale, who's less, less so Ray Romano and then Anna Paquin, which has been a, become a bit of a point of discussion. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't have a lot to say about Cannavale. I thought Ray Romano was, pretty good he was I, great yeah I, he was he was i thought he was awesome in yeah this movie. I, I would uh actually embrace him in more dramatic roles i yeah. haven't seen the big sleep and i know he's good in that too the or big the, sick the big sick oh, oh he's fantastic yeah in that sorry movie. um yeah it, but yeah he's he has um vastly improved my impression of him from yep. a, <laughs> everybody loves raymond days <laughs> yeah <laughs> not doing the impression yet <laughs> all right <laughs> um and anna paquin I'll save for when you talk about what you thought of the other supporting people. Okay. Uh, so, like I said, I was rewatching it. And Bobby Cannavale is more inconsequential than the next. Yeah. I really like that dude, though. No, yeah. I love Bobby Cannavale. And I I, I hope someone figures out how to use him yeah. soon. Because I do think he could be a leading man. Mm -hmm. But he's got such like a, hey, ba, ba, da, ba, da, yeah. <laughs> vibe about him that no one really knows how to use him. Because they don't want to make like a mob movie with him, but because that'd be too he, obvious. Because it'd be too obvious. But then he <laughs> seems like out of place in any other character, and so. But I think it's great that he's a cop in the in the uh, Ant Man movies. Mm -hmm. He's in this fantastic little indie movie called The Station Agent. Have you seen that mm -mm. with uh, Peter Dinklage? It's so good, and he's just kind of like a guy. Hmm. He's just like a guy with a food truck, and. Uh, He's great in that movie. Hmm. It's from like 2003, I think. It's a it's a really good movie. Uh, side note, what, seek that movie out. It's I just watched it for the first time this year, and it's fantastic. There is nothing to it. Peter Dinklage inherits a train station, and he's kind of a curmudgeonly man. And two people who have businesses near the station teach him to not be so curmudgeonly. And hmm. that's it. Okay. Uh, but it's just real charming and great. And he's, he's awesome in it. Um, so it was cool to see him, you know, I know he had worked with Scorsese on that show vinyl, which didn't go anywhere mm -hmm. really. Um, but it was cool to see like Scorsese being like, no, you are a talented actor. Like yeah. vinyl's success was not because, or not unsuccess was not because of you. Um, and Ray Romano, who was also on vinyl. And I, I I thought Ray Romano was actually one of the better supporting roles in this movie. Oh, totally. the, that first scene with him and De Niro where he's asking him about like whether or not he has gotten into fights or whatever. Like he has really good chemistry with all the leads. Yeah. I think. Um, he bounces off of them in like really, um, really charming, memorable ways, but no, never intrusive. 
Yeah, it's weird because he kind of fits like a glove. And I mean, those three people have interacted with each other in a lot of movies before. Right. And then he's kind of a newcomer to this. And he think he actually bounces off of all of them pretty well. Like, it's like he didn't miss a beat yeah. you know, with them. And he was never there. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's it, he also doesn't seem like he's one of the... It doesn't seem like, even though I'm sure he was, like, fangirling out of his mind to be working with these three legendary guys, like... You don't see that come across in his mm-hmm. performance. Like, it feels very natural. Yeah, it's not, like, so wide-eyed that. or anything like that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Anna Paquin, she plays uh, one of Scorsese, or one of Scorsese's, one of De Niro's daughters, mm-hmm. um, who, when she's pretty young, De Niro finds out that, like, the shopkeep pushed her when they were in the shop. And so he takes her and walks her down to the shop and beats the crap out of this guy, breaks his hand on the sidewalk... And it kind of traumatizes this little girl and she's she's kind of she gets really scared of her dad mm-hmm. when she sees that. And so anytime like there's a problem or like there's something in the news, she kind of like right then she's at this perfect formative age when she sees him beat up the shopkeep that she realizes kind of what he does for a living. Mm-hmm. And that colors her entire view of him for the rest of his life. Um so as the story goes on, she grows up to be Anna Paquin, who I thought was Brie Larson until I saw her in the credits. <laughs> um, and she's really, really quiet. Like every time she interacts with Frank, it's just like awkward silence, yep. except for one seven word line that she says after he kills Hoffa, where she questions why he hasn't called Hoffa's wife. Mm-hmm. Um more of the backstory to that is that she really admired Hoffa because she thought Hoffa was helping people and that was a noble thing. That was the opposite of dad and, and Hoffa was affectionate towards her, not in like a creepy way, but like they just had like a really nice relationship that like, um, you know, like a, like a, like a, the cool uncle kind of is, is how she viewed Hoffa. Like she respected him and she loved him. And, um, then seeing that he had died or had disappeared and she kind of puts two and two together that, that the Nero did it. And then as a result of that, just doesn't, we don't see her for the rest of the movie after that, because she severs all ties with him after he goes to prison. Um, it's kind of become a contentious point about whether or not she's good in the movie. Um, or like, you know, she's one of the only major, she's probably the, the most major female character in the movie. I thought she was great. I really liked her. I thought her silence, like every time Every time she was on there, I thought her silence conveyed the weight of the world. Um, I wouldn't say she's great. I think I just don't think she was given enough to do. To so like, that's the main argument is right. that she's like kind of not. I, I mean, like, I think what she what she did was fine with with the material she had. Mm. It's just it's not enough for me to like register an opinion okay. either way on right. It. Um, I don't. I don't know if there need to be more women involved in the movie or not, per se. I, I get what they did was intentional, which is that the, the women didn't matter to these guys. Yeah. So the movie is taking the, the perspective of how they're viewing the world right. and, and how he's recounting the world because right. he is the framing device himself, right. is Frank's character. So I respect the fact that it's totally intentional that the women are diminished because he, that's how he thinks. That being said, there were some parts in the movie where it was like, man, like, 
these women never say anything like, yeah. like, like they never have an opinion or like they, it, you know like well and, and watching these three go back and forth it's kind of like eating a large tub of popcorn yeah um did you <laughs> this is a this is a pardon me while i walk down memory lane were you there when we saw oceans 13 no so a group of us went to go see oceans 13 and our friend peter uh ate a large popcorn and someone dared him to eat the entire thing <laughs> okay while we were there and he didn't do that oh um but he gave it the college try and at one point during the movie he <laughs> someone looked at him and said hey peter how's that popcorn coming along and he went it's so much of the same flavor <laughs> incredibly loud <laughs> that's actually my second favorite peter food related story <laughs> is the other one the cake no uh was it yeah cake oh, i thought it was like pizza but... oh when he threw the fly into the pizza yeah so yeah he, he he caught a fly in his hands and then he like threw it down to go and kill it because he thought he was so cool and went right into the pizza <laughs> that's hilarious douche <laughs> um, anyway so that's that is kind of how it feels when you yeah. have these three like because we don't check in with like Cannavale or Ray Romano once yeah. Hoffa gets introduced like it is the Sheeran uh, Russell Hoffa happy yes. fun time hour right and so <laughs> happy it, fun time three hours <laughs> yeah and so <laughs> it does kind of feel like it's so much of the same flavor so yeah I, I get it like, like you're I, just I like can we hot to talk to anybody else? Yeah, it's like like can we just have something to like break this up for just like a second? Yeah. You know, like I, like I respect all these people like immensely as actors, but damn, I want to see like hear someone else talk. You know, yeah, like, that was my thing about it, and as, I think that kind of colored my view of her performance because she's kind of the the focal oh, not the focal point, but she she's kind of like the test example of the rest of that, which right. is like. She's like, the only foil to any of these dudes right, the entire movie. Right. And, and like, I'll be honest, after like one or two scenes of, of the daughter and even in her young form, not saying anything and being silent, I got it. She, <laughs> yeah. Like, she doesn't like her dad because she's suspicious of him. And yeah. like, so I see that carry through to like a named actress. Yeah. And then she's like doing the same thing that the little girl was doing. And I'm not saying that like acting requires dialogue because I don't believe in that. Right. I, I think there's a lot you can convey with just the look. Right. Um, so I don't mean to go and diminish just giving <clears> a look. It, but it was just so limited that I wanted more. It, but I also respect the fact that it was intentional the way it was. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I caught mean, between I, two things. Yeah. And, and I get it too because there are so many like in the Scorsese like gangster movies and even like Raging Bull. Like there are so many female characters that just like bounce off of the main tough guy that like call them on their BS when it gets too much for even them. Yeah. That it is kind of weird that that's missing here. Cause it's a little bit a staple of like those Scorsese gangster movies. Mm -hmm. Like the wives are just kind of content to go along with whatever illegal shit their husbands are doing. Yeah. Like there's no like screaming at them. Mm -hmm. Like every other, I mean, Sharon Stone in a uh, casino. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, I don't remember her name, but the woman who plays, De Niro's wife and Raging Bull, like, or you know, in The Godfather, where Kay's calling out Michael yeah, and all yeah. this stuff. You know? That's kind of like a mob movie staple, and you don't yeah. get that in this movie. Like, like I said, the women are more than fine to just like, all right, yeah, this well, is I, the I, life we have. I think it's more like they're more than fine to like not ask any questions. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and, and yeah. The but the thing is, okay, 
I think that that's probably something that's very truthful. Sure. Because there's obviously a lot of married mob mobsters throughout right. history, right. right? So some some women had to have been comfortable with not saying anything or right. not asking questions. That being said, I think the reason why there's a lot of mob movies that deal with the wife who's growing suspicious and has like you know the big scene where she flips out and calls him out on his bullshit. It's because it's dramatically more interesting. Yes, it's actually entertaining. Right. This movie is not, not interested right. in being entertaining. Yes, exactly. And so, and so, there's a part of me that like, wants to see that, yeah. like super cliche scene, because yeah, it, it would liven up the movie a bit. <laughs> yeah, you know. And, and I respect the fact the movie's not doing that because it's being the anti-mob movie in a way. Yeah. But once again, it's like you have like a potentially. Dr- interesting dramatic thing that you could do and you avoid doing it Mm -hmm. and that is it was a little frustrating personally right Right. uh that being said sometimes i also find those those scenes a little obnoxious because it's like you're you're waiting for like the the scene where like no like someone gets nagged on you know by the parent or you know a significant other brother you know whatever and yeah that's also sometimes not well done. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But it, it, I don't know. This movie, I think, at a certain point you texted me and you were like, yeah. does this get good? <laughs> and I <laughs> I jokingly responded, yeah, beginning to end. Yeah. Even though I don't feel that way about the movie at all. Um, but I totally understood where you're coming from because I was sitting there watching it going, I'm not not compelled by this. Mm-hmm. But what is happening? Right. Like what? Like what are we? What are we doing here, guys? Like what? Like what is this driving? Yeah. Toward? What's your What's your point? What's your yeah. end goal here? And then when it kicks in, it's the last forty five minutes of the movie. And what I told you is like, this isn't a movie that is made up of moments. It's not. There's not like a memorable moment in mm, the movie, right? That I can point to, yeah. which is actually why I started watching it before because I don't really like watching movies in chunks but it's why I started watching it before you came over here because I was like I don't remember specifics about the movie yeah I just remember how it made me feel and I loved that mm. and that's a totally valid way to make a movie yeah um but it doesn't make for good podcasting yeah. <laughs> so I needed well, I needed you be the refresher. judge <laughs> sure. audience yeah um so I, I went back and, and rewatched it and uh you know, I have seen some complaints about the the runtime. Have you seen the meme that's going around about like how to watch the Irishman as a mini series? No. And it's like stop it after Hoffa ends the phone call, then stop it after Hoffa does uh, after he leaves the house. Or it's like no. broken up into four parts of how to watch it like a mini series. And I get that it's a long movie, yeah. and I get that it can be a slog. However, I feel like in order to complain about the runtime of The Irishman, we have to see how many episodes of Grey's Anatomy or whatever dumb bullshit you watch on Netflix you have binged in a single day. Because if it's longer than The Irishman on multiple occasions, I don't think you get to complain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like, that's like the people who are complaining about this movie. Like, let me see your ticket. How many times did you see Endgame? Mm-hmm. How, did, did you go back yeah yeah did you go back when you when they added it and made it 10 minutes longer yeah did you go like how many times how hyped were you that endgame was three hours mm-hmm. long yeah if you weren't then you get to complain about how long the irishman was. and this is where i get to show my receipts because i also thought endgame was too damn long because man. it was <laughs> it totally was and 
In fact, this gets me on my little soapbox for today, which is, man, I wish movies were shorter, dude. <laughs> Come on. But if anyone deserves or earns a movie of this length, it's Scorsese. Yeah. You know, your, your stupid ass comic book, blockbuster, whatever the shit movie has not earned his three hour runtime. Right. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. Right. It, it, like, I was of the opinion with Endgame that that ish needed to be two hours. Like yeah. it needed to be a smash and grab. Like, cause it's the, it's not a whole movie. No. Endgame is not a whole movie. It isn't. It's not a whole movie. No. And so, uh, it's, ju- it should just be climax and, uh, falling action. Mm-hmm. That's what Endgame should be. Yep. Um, it's yeah. That movie's way too long by at least an hour. Mm. Um, ah, half an hour. I'll give it half an hour. I'll give it half an hour. Um, we'll compromise on that, but it did really feel like a lot of the complaints about the runtime are like, mm, mm, let me see how long you have the office on repeat. Yeah. Like, come on. Man. Like, at least I come by my bitching about runtimes, honestly. Yeah, right. Um, so, I, and it, it did seem, I guess we'll talk about the, I don't want to talk about the controversy, but there's, there is sort of like the the focal point of the movie. Like when Scorsese makes a movie, he is inextricably tied to the movie, right? Yeah, like yeah. you are looking at this movie through the lens of Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Like when he makes a movie, you are viewing it ultimately from his perspective. And, you know, he's, he's one of the driving forces behind the like 1970s film school brat movement and like the auteur, the rise of the auteur that we saw in the 60s and 70s. And he's like a singular visionary director when it comes to this kind of stuff. So, Mike, what do you think about Scorsese in general? I know it's kind of a weird time to bring this up. We haven't. Yeah. I don't think I've ever like had a conversation about him with you. And and that's why it's going to be a very short one, because he is one of my blind spots for oh, sure okay. in terms of uh, directors. So right. I, I have seen actually very few of his movies. And it's something that. I was going to work on correcting over the next month. I wish I had gotten to it before this sure. podcast. Cause I mean, I don't like being someone who speaks authoritatively about anything. And then this is something that I feel bad talking about without really being someone who's well-versed in his films. Right. So now yeah. follow up question to that. Now that you said that, yeah. why do you think Scorsese, even though you haven't seen a lot of his movies, mm-hmm. but you said if anyone has earned a movie of this length, it's Scorsese. What makes you say that even though you're not familiar with his movie? Well, because I, mean, I know that he is someone who, uh, I mean, just I've, I'm familiar with his like um, perspectives on other films, mm-hmm. like his involvement in documentaries about like other works of film oh. and his contributions to that, as well as I know that what he makes is is generally thoughtful. I've read his pieces and what he's had to say on things. Yeah. And I have seen I've seen his um, his other mob movies. I mean, I've seen parts of Casino. I've seen all of Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. So I feel like at the very least... A guy who's made three of these kinds of movies has a right to go and talk about right. this type of thing in depth, long form. Yeah. I, I know that he's someone who is basically, as much as he is um, a filmmaker, he's also a film historian. And mm-hmm. so he's always engaged with the discussion with film. And so that that's someone who's different than your journeyman director who you know pumps out a three-hour movie because the studio told him to. <laughs> right. This is something that is obviously... a you know, a labor of love and he's an artur, you know, and, and you know that that's someone who I think after this long of a career that he's had has earned the right to go and make a long movie. Right. That makes sense. Um, so then what do you think about him returning to the well of mob movies? Like, 
Do you think that's silly? Do you think that's uh, it's fine? No, I, um, I think I think that's valid. I think um, it's something I appreciate seeing someone in different stages of his life and yes. his career approaching a subject matter and looking at it differently. We're not the same people we were five seconds ago, and we certainly weren't the same people we were thirty years ago, or you know, whatever when we made something. And so, you know, I, I, I see this as not like a rebuke or a rebuttal of what he's done before, but it's an addendum to like what yeah. he did and showing, okay, you've seen these other movies where these other guys got whacked. And so they didn't get to go and like fade out or flame out basically. Or, yeah. Or the one guy like in Goodfellas, he gets off cause he goes into witness protection cause he names names. Right. Right. Uh, but here's an entire movie where it's this guy is the one who got away basically. <laughs> yeah. And, and what he did wasn't like that <clears throat> momentous in terms of, like ultimately it's impact on anything and right. he's, he's forgotten and he kind of just fades away. Um, I think that's, it's kind of powerful coming from someone who is now much older, like himself to looking back on, on maybe his own works, you know, yeah. in a way. <clears throat> and, um, I, I appreciate like having different takes on things. I mean, I mean, I'm someone who's also, I'm writing a sequel to my last book. I've made sequels to the movies that we've made together right. stuff like that. And each time I'm doing them, I'm kind of infusing like new things and challenges in my own life into them. And I think that that's something that like, yeah, you, you can, you're making quote unquote the same movie, but there's, there's lessons learned in all of them, yeah. you know, and they're different lessons, I think anyway. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not comparing myself to Scorsese. Sure. Also, <laughs> it's three movies out of 67 directed features. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, we're not we're we're not talking about like a one trick pony here. He's yeah, done different things. Four if you count The Departed. Yeah, five if you count Wolf of Wall Street. Right. Like, come on, man. Yeah, it's not. I hated that, and that's the criticism for me that I really got like infuriated with, which is everyone is because you know, Scorsese said what he said about Marvel movies, and there was kind of a meme of like Scorsese. Marvel movies are all the same and not cinema. Also, Scorsese, here's another movie about the mafia yeah. starring Robert De Niro. And it's like, okay, well, no. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, it's, I think it's like he has to pay for the sins of other mob movies also existing that weren't his own, yeah. too, you know? And, but have aped him because he's the best at making them. <laughs> right, you know? Uh, so, yeah, he's also paying for that, but... Let's be honest here. There hasn't been like a ton of mob movies in the last 20 years, yes! guys. <laughs> yes. I saw a comment today that was like, uh, you know, I'm not interested in spending nearly four hours watching yet another mob movie. And I was like, the last mob movie I can think of is if you count it, Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, there's like uh, Black like Mass. Is Motherless Brooklyn kind of a mob movie, or? But that's like a. It's told from the story, from the perspective of a private detective. Okay, and you got like Mobster Squad, which. Oh I mean, yeah, Gangster Squad. Gangster Squad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, like we're we're talking about every two years or something, or three years. <laughs> yeah. And, and like I, a non-notable mob movie comes out. Yeah. Also, like, do you, are you just like, oh crap, another western? You yeah. know, like. That's so weird to me. And I get yeah. not being into mob movies. If mob movies aren't your thing, mob movies aren't your thing. But it's just weird to be like angry that there's another one when there aren't that many of them and there's like 12 superhero movies a year. Oh but like it's coming from this, um, like these are your dad's movies. Like that, yeah. that subject was well mined 
30 or 40 or sure. 50 or 60 years ago. So therefore we have some sort of cultural fatigue lag from that still, yeah. you know, but like, <clears throat> I think, I think there's a lot that has been said about mobsters and mafia and stuff like that throughout film. And I think it's becoming more and more difficult to say, say something original the same way. I feel like now after a hundred freaking superhero movies, it's very difficult to say right. something new too. Um, that being said, this is actually a pretty novel take on one, as <laughs> yeah. evidenced by some of my ambivalence about parts of it. Yeah. So, obviously, he was mining new things in this. Well, and I was thinking about it as I was watching that first hour again tonight, as I was like, they're all very different movies, though. Like, Goodfellas isn't that long. It's only two hours. Yeah. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a highlight reel of a different mob movie. Mm. Um, and it takes place in New York. Casino takes place in Las Vegas. The Departed takes place in Boston. Right. Uh... Wolf of Wall Street isn't even one, right. and like, but it just feels like one. Yeah. And uh, this is in Philadelphia, like mm-hmm. in Chicago, I think. Like they're all distinct, right? And so I think that it's a it's a bonkers criticism to begin with. Like, were you mad that I don't know Christopher Nolan made three Batman movies? Right. Like, it's, it's it doesn't hold water as as like a concept to, as a point to be criticized. Yeah, I am mad that Christopher Nolan made like ten movies about single dudes whose wives are dead and yeah know, like are you are I'm you joking, mad that christopher joking. nolan has only explored the theme of obsession right no uh, no not the, really the theme that he is always thinking about maybe his wife dying <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, i'm just joking though with that stuff but no i agree with you completely um i think it's i really don't like how like his mcu comments ignited what's really just a stupid debate yeah it, and if and if this stuff is so if this if these comic book movies man are so precious to you that you can't take a little bit of criticism from one of like the greatest living directors out there, then that goes and shows how thin skinned you are. And yeah. I, it's, I know that sounds like a super basic like, comment, but <laughs> did you hear Mark Maron's comments about it? No, where he was like, "You're in charge. Take the hit." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and he's in Joker. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I mean, like. It, seriously it this isn't stopping the flow of comic book movies like it has done nothing to stem it (laughs) yeah yeah now what i will say is scorsese out here like well it's the reason why i couldn't get the irishman made at paramount is a little disingenuous because he said give me 150 million dollars to make this movie right and like yeah you see every penny on the screen because of the de-aging but that's the only spot you see it like Mm -hmm. this movie should not have costed any studio 150 million dollars like give me 150 million dollars to make a three and a half hour movie about old guys Mm -hmm. like that's just not that's not that's a non-starter in almost any era especially ones whose like market value have have diminished yeah you know and since their prime yeah and it's not to say like we did an episode on wrath of khan and mm. like i think there are movies about elderly people that are good oh absolutely but like yeah it's a crazy thing to ask for mm. any studio actually true story i don't think we ever released that wrath of khan episode we didn't no we didn't what yeah Oh, that's crazy. I'll yeah. have to find it. Yeah, so, find oh, my it. computer's dead. Well, once you figure it, yeah. it'll be like the lost episode. It was like, yeah. it's supposed to be like I think our second or first episode. Really? Actually. Yeah. I swear we did it. Anyway. No, we did it, but we just never released it. That's weird. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so it's not even that that story isn't something that can be told. It's just the way he decided to tell it. 
I mean, that's a big ask, even yeah. from Martin Scorsese. Yeah, no, I, I don't think he was being completely fair either. Uh, yeah. I think he kind of skewed the facts to his side a bit. It, it, especially on the heels of, like, the last movie he made, which right. was Silence, which was like, let me shoot this three-hour movie about Catholic priests in feudal Japan mm-hmm. dealing with whether or not God is, exists and is speaking to them or if he's turned their back on like. And I'm going to shoot it on location in Vietnam or whatever. Like, what? Yeah. That's crazy. And yes, if Martin Scorsese asked me, I would probably do that. But then that ish made like $3 because they had a bad release model on it. Right. And so... Yeah, it's it's a big ask. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot. It's, it's, It's a lot to ask. And, you know, yeah, his Scorsese earned it, probably. But at the same time, like... It's still a business. Like, show business is still business. Right. And I, I don't know. That's just a crazy thing to ask for when your movie is just, like, people talking. Yeah. Like, 150 movies, $150 million for a movie that's just three and a half hours of people talking. Yeah. There's, like, no action in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Most of, like, the violence happens off screen. You don't really see him cap that many people. You see no. the aftermath. Right. So, yeah, I uh, I don't know about that either, Marty. Like let's let's be let's be honest about this a little no, bit. No, yeah, I I think what he made were some ill-considered comments that as listeners of this podcast probably know, I kind of agree with right. on a base level, but I mean, he wasn't the best avatar to deliver it in yeah. a way and and they weren't as well thought out as I was hoping they would be. And then one side really dug in and then he had to dig in and, and his actual response when he dug in was, I think pretty good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was tough. Yeah. I mean, also, also to be fair, yeah. I, I can't imagine trying to promote your movie and then having to talk about anything but your movie. Yeah. So I totally get that frustration too of like, I hate him. Like, what do you want me to say, man? Yeah. Like, uh, so I get that too, but I mean, I saw it in a theater. It was packed. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that it's in trouble. Like, I don't know. I don't know if it's like as doom and gloom as Scorsese thinks it is. That's that theater was sold out. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised because when I bought my ticket or I was looking at tickets all weekend and I don't really love buying online because I've gotten burned in the past doing that. And so I was looking at tickets all weekend, deciding on whether or not I should. And then day of the show, it was like full. And I was like, oh, crap. Like, all right, cool. And I saw it in a sold out theater in Bakersfield, California. Like not a play. I saw Silence with one other person Mm -hmm. It by myself. Like it was me and one other by themselves person. Hell, I saw Terminator with one other person. Like people still showed up for it. Yeah. And that's cool. I think like I think that's encouraging and the Netflix thing is weird like their whole thing with theaters or the theater owner response to Netflix has been kind of weird I don't know I think I think we're still trying to figure it out I think that uh that sounded like I was crying I'm not (laughs) (laughs) the death of theaters is really getting to you yeah um but I do think we're at this like we're at just like a weird nexus where People are trying to figure out the next step for distribution and Netflix. So what happened is Netflix wanted a 30 day window and then it's on Netflix and theaters wanted a 90 day window and then it's on Netflix and Netflix didn't relent. 
So only certain theaters decided to show it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you think about all that? I think that we're in a place where we've had, you know, the theater system exists for a hundred years close to now. And, uh, they have to adapt to a model that, that is moving very quickly that they don't understand and audience tastes that are changing very rapidly. You know, I, 10 years ago, or a little more than 10 years ago, we were content with just getting these Netflix things in the mail as yeah. a DVD. And now yeah. all of a sudden, I mean, the mail business is, I don't know if it exists anymore. Um, it, it, things have changed so quickly that um, I think they're struggling to adapt and without destroying their business model, which you know they have successfully, in most ways, maintained across a century. So... It's hard to blame them for being reluctant to change. That being said, I think that people's tastes are changing very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think they need to adapt or die. (laughs) I think, I mean, I think that theaters are always going to exist in some form. I'm not not saying that like we're going to see them all wiped out. Yeah. But I think we're moving to a place where it's going to get very hard soon for them short of having some, you know, some of these big blockbusters to get people motivated to get off their asses and binging Netflix to come and watch them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But repertory screenings do well for the most part. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's like that. Those do well. Um, I think there's a, a burgeoning appreciation for that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to discount that. I think uh, what I'm concerned about is you have an entire generation now of kids who are getting accustomed to getting almost all their entertainment from a very small screen. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not even talking about the TV anymore, but Yeah, yeah, from the know, phone. From the phone, a tablet, yeah, a laptop, yeah, or whatever. And you know, is is the theater experience going to have that much more of an appeal to them to motivate them to get off of that? I don't know. Like I'm not sure if we're going to be if we're properly spreading an appreciation of those things. And I also don't know if like the future of theater is literally just seeing big blockbusters because that looks good on a big screen with loud stuff and right. talk, people talking at each other. Is that going to be something that people really want to go out for? I know your anecdotal experience and, and obviously based off the box office of, of this movie shows that people want to go and see people talking on. Has screen. it done well in the limited? Yeah, I, th- I think it's time. done. I think it's done decent enough. Yeah. You know, it's done um, better than silence. I'm sure. Right. Like the first uh, theater or the first screen average is good. Mm-hmm. Um, but is that something we're passing on to the next generation is Mm -hmm. like, I feel like we're setting up something now where like comedies are failing at the box office. Mostly, Mm -hmm. um, you know, romantic comedy, romance movies too are, are we setting up like a dichotomy where anything that basically involves people talking is just going to be relegated to a small screen and it's not Mm -hmm. worth getting your ass off of to go and watch in a theater. That's something that I'm concerned with. I mean, I will say that while I do see that I have seen an uptick in, like I've been very, I've kept a very watchful eye on what our theaters decide to show. Mm-hmm. And this year, the amount of indies that I've seen show up here is astronomical. Yeah. Like I, th- we got Jojo rabbit, which I never would have thought would have come, it wouldn't have come here unless it got nominated for awards in the last seven years. Yeah. I think uh, we got the Irishman. I could not believe my eyes when I saw the Irishman listed as a movie we were going to have. Like that blew my mind. Um, you know, and we only had it for a week. We only had silence for a week, but 
compared to where our town specifically was with this stuff, we're an hour and a half north of where they make the movies Mm -hmm. and we don't get all of them. Yeah. You know, and, uh, now we are and it's it's crazy like we're we're seeing our town get some more limited release stuff faster we had parasite for like three weeks Mm -hmm. what like i can't believe that yeah um i think there's an appreciation growing for alternative genres of film yeah (laughs) yeah there's there's definitely a want for counter programming i think Mm -hmm. because parasite i mean Everyone is talking about how good Parasite is. It's kind of just people talking until the last like five minutes and mm-hmm. then it's back to people talking. Mm-hmm. Like it there's you know, it's not a blockbustery movie, but people love that thing, man. Like, I think I think if they can figure out, you know, how to go and have limited releases of these things and only dedicate maybe one screen, mm-hmm. you know, out of twenty to these there's a market for this stuff. It's yeah. It's I think they're now afraid to go and like block off 10 screens sure. for this you know that's yeah. that that's the thing is how do you schedule it correctly yeah and you know the irishman only ran here for a week and it only did three showings a day but mine was sold out you know like i said it there's a there's a there's a hunger for it mm-hmm. there are people who want to see this stuff yeah and so in my experience more often than not people want to dialogue about this stuff mm-hmm. like even even once upon a time in Hollywood, which is three hours of people talking, like there's not a lot of Tarantino violence in this movie until the end, mm. the very end. Granted, I saw it under special circumstances the week it came out at Tarantino's theater in LA, but it's not like they were having the stars on parade or whatever. And yeah. we saw it on the middle of a day of the day and it was sold out. Um, granted, it was in LA, it's a built in audience. Uh, but Hateful Eight, you know, three hours of people talking in the snow, mm-hmm. saw that roadshow. 70 millimeter at the arc light sold out, you know, like there, there are an audience granted that's once again in LA where they make the movies where people who are into that stuff live. Um, but I mean the Fox theater here in town, like they've done pretty well on the repertory screenings. Like yeah. some stuff, maybe not like there weren't a lot of people when I saw modern times. I don't know how Harry Potter went last. Oh, night. I'm sure it was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I am too. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to get cynical about theaters failing. That being said, I think they should start accepting more streaming service stuff because there are mm. people like me out there who will go out of their way to see the streaming service stuff from creators they like. Like, yeah, yeah if Always Be My Maybe came out at the theater, even though that movie is in my top 10 of the year, I probably would have waited for Netflix. Mm-hmm. And so it's good that it was on Netflix because I watched it. And I friggin' loved it, mm-hmm. but I don't think I would have sought it out at the theater unless I heard like really, really good things about it. Uh, <clears throat> Dolomite is my name. Also in my top two, top, top two, top 10, mm-hmm. maybe even top three. I really enjoyed that movie, but probably wouldn't have seen it unless it was on Netflix. I mean, so, I probably would have seen El Camino in a theater. Yeah. If, if it had been like a little bit more like bombastic, mm-hmm. I think I probably would have seen it in a theater. Yeah. I feel like... Like, or if it had been like, you know, Walter White in a movie oh, or something yeah. like that, you know, like, because I could have seen the value in watching it with a group of people. I yeah. think there's something very power to, powerful about watching something in a communal, communal setting with yes, people. Yes, I agree. That and, won't change. And that's why when Netflix has worked with some of my favorite directors, yeah. like the Coen brothers, I made a point to figure out how I could see that in a theater. Mm-hmm. Granted, it lined up with me taking my wife to 
um, L.A. for Thanksgiving so she could fly back and see her mom. And so I was able to see it in a theater out there. Uh, but it was sold out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was fantastic with an audience. I mean, I came home the same day and showed you the opening segment of that movie. Mm-hmm. Which is in one of the craziest things I've seen in a movie. Yep. <laughs> that segment absolutely leveled that audience, man. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it made us in the palm of that movie's hand for the rest of the runtime. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm so glad I had that experience. So there are people who want it. Like if theater owners are scared about that, they should not be yeah. at all. Like people will shell out money to go see those things. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Like, I, I mean, you know, Scorsese, all this to go back to the Scorsese conversation that we were having. I always say, like, Spielberg's my favorite director, but then I see a Scorsese movie and I'm just like, golly, like, that guy can make a movie, man. And this year, like, leading up to The Irishman coming out, I realized that I only have, like, five movies and I've seen his entire filmography, mm-hmm. which is crazy because it's, like, 60 plus movies. Yeah. Um, I'm not counting some of his documentaries, like Italian American. Anyway. Not the point. My, my thing is that I will forever seek out a Scorsese movie in a theater. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I saw I saw The Irishman and Parasite in the same day, and I was trying to figure out how to schedule it. And Irishman was my priority, no matter how many good things I heard about Parasite. Um, and arguably how much better that movie is in a theater than Irishman. There was no way I wasn't seeing the Scorsese movie in a theater. Mm-hmm. Um, like that is like if he releases a movie that and I have even kind of the slightest a- availability to see it in a theater, I'm making it happen. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just going to make that happen for him right. because I love his movies so much. So there are and I'm not the only one, yeah. you know, like I that, that, that's what it, the point is, is like that is a name that will get people to see your movie. Just let it happen. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think that the theater owners are being maybe a little too skittish about it. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. Um, but that being said, movie looks pretty good on my giant TV. I was yeah. just watching it on my giant TV and yeah. it looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm also like, even the smallest screen is still quite a bit bigger than my TV. Mm. And I have a pretty big TV. Yep. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I think that that there's still a value to it. And I'm, you know, no matter how big my TV is, unless I just live in a movie theater, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like I convert a movie. I w- in order for me to stop going to a movie theater, I would have to be, I would have to buy a movie theater and convert it into a living space. Mm-hmm. Like that's just how much value I personally put in the theater going experience. Yeah. Um, because I don't have the sound system to go with my giant screen. And even if I did, I don't know if it would change it. Like, I don't know if... <laughs> even if you did, you don't know if your neighbors would like it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if my neighbors would like it. I don't know if, uh, like, Ford v. Ferrari, which I haven't seen, but by all accounts has, like, incredible sound design. Yeah. I want to see that as loud as possible. Right. You know, like, the if the point of the movie is sound, and this is also, like, I'm an audiophile and an audio engineer and stuff, like, you're going to get the best sound quality at a movie theater for the most part mm-hmm. as as long as their equipment's up to date or well maintained right which is hard to come by here but <laughs> as long and, as it's not a christopher nolan movie here. sure yeah <laughs> i mean what did that guy say again 
Yeah, that was by design, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, anyway, I, I think you should see The Irishman maybe at home so you can pee. I had to pee so bad. Yeah. I had to. <laughs> no joke. <sighs> Do I want to say this on the podcast? No, you don't. I unbuttoned my pants <laughs> in the theater. Oh, uh, man. Because yeah. I had to pee so bad. Uh, cut.